0: You're listening to the Banana Data Podcast, a new podcast hosted by Data IQ. I'm Trevaney. And I'm Will. And we'll be taking you through the latest and greatest in data science without taking ourselves too seriously. In today's episode, we're going to focus on the future of AI, from the impact of today's models on tomorrow's data, the switch to Python 3, and the policy implications of machine learning. Okay, so
1: the first article I want to discuss comes from Quartz. It's called, Here's a Prediction. In the future, predictions will only get worse. (laughs) So in this case, Alison Schrager talks about how, despite us having better data, better quality data, better algorithms, more computational power, all that jazz, uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to better predictions, which is, I think, probably counterintuitive, why it's a, a catchy article, but she makes some interesting points that I think are totally valid. The big idea is just that, all those things are true. like we should be getting better at predicting the future, no doubt, but um, the current state of the world is constantly responding and evolving. Uh, and her argument is that obviously we live in a more interconnected society, a more techno- technologically driven society, um, the world is changing more rapidly too. So even though in theory we have better decision-making processes and in practice, we probably have better decision making and predictive processes. Uh, the world's changing so fast that even though our prediction methods are really good, uh, the world's going to outsmart us. It's going to change too much. And on net, the predictions are actually going to end up being worse.
0: Wait, even if we're collecting new data and getting all sorts of new data points and up-to-date, latest, fresh data?
1: So I think, yeah, I mean, the example that really came to mind for me uh, was using an app like Waze. Do you use Waze at all?
0: Oh, uh, well, I don't drive, but yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> I live in New York City, come on. <laughs> yeah, fair enough.
1: Um, but so for listeners out there, Waze, you know, a traffic navigation app. Um, but so in this case, Waze does its best, it uses AI, machine learning, to direct you to the shortest route. Um, but if you're in a car driving and you have the Waze app turned on and it says go left, but so does everyone else who's also on that same road, because left is the non-crowded fast option, well, suddenly all of those cars are now turning left with you, and the left option, option A, is now more crowded. Ah. Uh, and so I mm-hmm. think that, that's a simple but illustrative example of how – what a powerful technology Waze is, no doubt, but it's still – can't necessarily take into account all the ways in which the world is adapting so rapidly.
0: Well, and this is the same problem in the financial system too, right? Where you have these hedge funds using complex modeling to say, sell stock X. All of a sudden, everyone's selling stock X. So then its value goes down and then no one wants to start selling it. And it's I guess it's I guess what you're seeing is like this feedback loop where the model says, do do this, and then everyone does that. So then the model becomes obsolete
1: yeah, no, I mean, this is definitely an area where we could learn a lot from finance, I'm sure. And one way to overcome this uh, has to do with observation weighting in your model building. So for our data science practitioners listening out there, uh, this is something that hopefully they're doing or, or should be doing in their model building. But so if you're thinking about building a time series model, by weighting I mean uh, the importance that you give to any single observation in your predictive model. Uh, and it's pretty intuitive, but it's something that you can easily accomplish mathematically which is weight more highly than more recent observations. And so that's something that makes a lot of theoretical and intuitive sense uh, and also leads to better performing models. So something that we should definitely be putting into place.
0: I think it's more than just math that's going to address these problems, right? We need to also be looking at the story and the context of what what we're trying to understand. So for me, I have a background in political science, right? I did a PhD in political science. But in 2016, we had, you know, this this person come out of left field, really, who had not been seen before in our data or whose methods or whose, mm-hmm. um, you know, just rise was so unprecedented. Mm-hmm. As a result, we really couldn't pick up on that nuance with, with, our, with our data, right, with our mm-hmm. models that already existed. Um, and in fact, those who were willing to sort of rewrite the script or rewrite what it meant um, in the data to have this sort of brand new factor... Uh, we're the ones who were better at actually catching or picking up the right prediction of that or the right outcome of that election. Uh, so I hope that moving into the future, we're not just saying, OK, well, we're going to weight our observations differently or we're going to do, you know, this mathematical modeling. But we're also going to make sure we as data scientists and we as practitioners are keeping the context and the nuance of what's going on in the real world in mind to better understand and make use of our models
1: yeah no I think that makes a lot of sense people have spoken before about big data and you know the death of theory mm-hmm. we just can look at the data for answers and we don't need this theoretical framework uh, and I think what you say is totally correct we still need you know theoretical underpinnings for our mathematical models so for sure right. um, but you know what's something else that could Make our model predictions bad. What? If our code breaks.
0: Oh, boy. I've had that happen.
1: Yeah, me too. Um, definitely written plenty of buggy code in my time. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to talk about an article written by Vicky Boykus called Python's Caduceus Syndrome.
0: Oh, what is Caduceus?
1: Caduceus was the staff carried by Hermes way back when. And so the staff is special because it's entwined with two different snakes. Oh, Okay, and so these snakes, they crawl up the staff, and at the top, one snake has a head that looks forward, and one snake has a head that looks back.
0: Okay, so this is the medical symbol, right? Yep, Um,
1: but so in this case, uh, really the head looking forward and the head looking back, that's the the key metaphor that we need for Python.
0: Okay, well, and it's snakes, so it all works. It all
1: works, yeah. But so, I mean, I'm sure the vast majority of our listeners are familiar, but Python is an open source programming language that's really popular in the data science space. Uh, And just to to be brief about it, on January 1st, 2020, there will no longer be updates made to Python version Mm 2. And and instead, the Python community will exclusively uh, shift efforts towards Python 3.
0: Okay. But wow. So that's soon. That's like in six months.
1: It is is soon, though. There's been warnings and there's been preparations for this a long time coming. So if you're an organization that has important Python code running in production, and you're planning to shift to Python 3, uh, you've known for a long time that you need to be aware of this transition. And why you need to be aware of this transition is that Python 3 is not backwards compatible. There are lines of code that you mm. could have written in Python 2 using Python 2 syntax um, that won't run using Python 3 compiler.
0: Wait, so why are they doing this? Why are they stopping Python seven Or yeah. I guess Python 2.
1: Yeah, so that great question. Um, Some of the details here are lost on me because my knowledge of Python only goes, but so deep. Um, But in general, the argument that Vicky makes here is that Python two was a great language. It was easy to learn. um, It got on, it brought on a lot of practitioners, both individuals and large organizations. Uh, And so, because of that, because Python two has become so popular, uh, the Python development community said, "Hey." you know, let's keep this success rolling. Let's make Python 3 the best language in the world so we can have, you know, new new users use it, but we can also have the biggest, baddest organizations in the world running all their production code in Python. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to achieve that, um, there are some details that they've decided to include in Python 3 that were absent from Python 2.
0: Wow. So it's going to redefine the language altogether.
1: I wouldn't say altogether, um, but they're going to make some shifts for sure. But so this is, you know, the, the point of the Caduceus syndrome is that, you know, should the Python community look back and say, hey, there's a lot of code that already exists that's been written in Python 2? Should we really make sure that, you know, we're not making breaking changes to the language? Should we make sure that we're prioritizing um, what already exists? Or should we be the snake that looks forward and say, look at all that python 3 still has to do that's python 3 still can do in the future and it should be really optimized this language to be the language of the future.
0: Huh. So I imagine there's debates right because there's nothing's ever simple. And so I'm guessing that there's people who are pure python 2 and those who are no we got to go forward. Um what's the what's the real debate here now?
1: That's you're exactly right, Trevini. Uh Guido Van Rossum, who's the Python BDFL.
0: What is a BDFL? Or I
1: guess I misspoke. He's no longer the Python BDFL. So BDFL is the benevolent dictator for life. Oh. And so Guido is the individual who's often credited with creating the Python language. So a pretty nice feather in his cap for sure. Uh, but there was a debate about some changes in syntax between Python two and Python three and again, my understanding I don't wanna uh, upset anyone here, but my understanding is that this debate about syntax changes uh was just kind of a it was just a heated debate that caused Guido to i think become a little bit dispirited uh, and decide mm-hmm. that you know the politics of this and, and had become too much uh, and to to step down from that benevolent dictator position. And so this is something that you see a lot in open source communities where success is great, the product or the technology grows and grows and gets bigger and bigger and more users and more developers. And that's all awesome. But then when you have so many people, uh, everyone has a different viewpoint. Everyone wants something different. Some people want the snake to look back.
0: Some Mm -hmm. people
1: want the snake to look forwards. And so you're totally right that I think Python community is also experiencing some of this turmoil
0: yeah i mean definitely right it's it's similar to how startups also grow, and you know people's visions change and what the investors want or whatever it is um will dictate the future i I'm curious to know what you know what the future is going to look like for Python right so if Guido has stepped down you know is it is it ruled by committee now is there a new b d f l what's you know what's the vision really
1: yeah i mean I think that uh open source technologies kind of have their own ecosystem of political management and how they you know have a hierarchy and they make changes and obviously people who inhabit the world of github can go and kind of see on the, the message boards and the branches and the pull requests what this all looks like so i'm not exactly familiar with pythons but i think you're right that in general this idea of open source governance is something that uh, still not necessarily a solved problem
0: yeah, especially since, you know, Python, especially the certain packages for machine learning underpins so many of existing, you know, practices and models. I know that I work with sklearn packages all the time to do predictions. And so I want to make sure that what I'm using is being um, governed and updated in a way that's, that's per, you know, that's reusable, right? That I'm not stuck with, okay, now this thing's going to break um, because, you know, we couldn't decide how to keep it up to speed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll see. But definitely, I think you and I both uh, have a big stake in Python success. So yeah. I'll just wish it well for its future.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to go and fix my code now to be ready for <laughs> Python 3. <laughs> Sounds
1: good. Now it's time for In English, Please. This is the segment of the show where we break down complex data science topics. Uh, and last week, we were talking a little bit about GANs, mm. and I think that's something where definitely for me and probably many of our listeners, uh, we could benefit from a little bit more clarification. So, Travani, I was wondering if you could explain GANs to us all in English, please.
0: Sure. So, everything you need to know about GANs is in the title. GANs is an acronym that stands for Generative Adversarial Networks, right? And so, the three words there actually tell you tell you what you need to know. So, the first thing is that these are neural networks. And what they're doing is creating um, a distribution of data, or they're mimicking data that can be text, image, or even plain numbers, in the idea of generating new points that are, in theory, indistinguishable from real data. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there's this website called Mm thishumandoesnotexist.com, right? And if you go there, you'll see photos of people. None of those people are real. All of those images have been made by a model using GANs. Mm. OK, so what did GANs do to make these, these people? Well, the in a general adversarial network, there are two neural networks. And they're adversaries of each other.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we have one network that's the discriminator. And that's very similar to what we already are familiar with in terms of classification. Here's some data. predict for me whether or not this picture of a person is a real person or not a real person, Mm -hmm. right? That's the model that's going to say, okay, yep, I'm seeing that. Uh, You know, yep, I'm seeing a real person. No, I'm I'm not seeing a real person. And then you have the second network, which is the generator. And that's the network that's actually creating these fake images. So the generator is creating a fake image of a person and feeding it into the same data that the discriminator is looking at. Right, so we're adding in fake images into a data set of real, real images, mm-hmm. and the discriminator is judging, yep, this is hu, this is human, this is not human, or, or real or not real, mm-hmm. and the generator in turn is seeing what the discriminator is saying and updating itself to better fool the um, the discriminator, right? And so they're adversaries in that the discriminator wants to suss out the fake mm-hmm. fake data. And the generator wants to fool the, the real data, and so uh, the idea here is that we're using these GANs one to create, you know, different models of or dist- different distributions of data that we can then use to maybe do some better forecasting. You know, this is very common in the financial services, and as we were speak- talking about earlier, um, or in the case of these images. Uh, which also then kind of raises questions around, well, what's real, what's not real? If a model can't distinguish it, can we distinguish it? Mm -hmm. Um, And in this sort of era of uh, false information, what does that really mean? But essentially, the the GAN model is working against itself to improve the data that it is producing for you. So it's not really predicting something for you. In fact, it's actually creating a distribution of data for you then to work off of.
1: Cool. All right. Well, thanks for explaining that in English.
0: You got it. So, Will, before uh, before we head out, I want to talk about one last article today, and it's called "How a Feel Good AI Story Went Wrong in Flint." Right. And this was written by Alexis Madrigal in The Atlantic, actually. And so, I don't know if you're familiar with the Flint, uh, Michigan crisis. I would
1: say to some extent, yeah, aware of it.
0: Sure. So, what's going on is that. Uh, In 2004, the city redirected where it was getting its water from, and so the water source actually started corroding the lead pipes, and lead was leaching in from people's uh, water pipes into their water, Mm -hmm. right? And lead is not good to drink. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the city needed to go through and replace all of those lead pipes with copper, right? But it's not that simple. It never is. The records on which homes have lead pipes were really messy and incomplete. And it was going to be expensive to have to dig into every single home mm-hmm. to look for lead or, or copper pipes. So in 2016, there was these volunteer computer scientists who worked uh, with funding from Google, actually, to create a model to predict which homes have lead or copper pipes. And they did so using um, a cheaper system called hydrovacking. So they were able to use hydrovacking to uh, test out a bunch of different homes for lead and be able to feed that data back into their model to create a prediction for, okay, um, these homes do have lead. These homes likely don't have lead. Mm -hmm. So they found actually that the age of the house, the location and the value um, were most predictive in finding lead pipes. So once that model was built in 2017, the city was able to replace 6,000 pipes in, in homes across the city, you know, so they exca- excavated around, I think, 8,300 pipes. Mm-hmm. And of those, over 6,000 were actually lead that needed to be replaced. So they had about a 70% accuracy rate. Okay. So it was all really good.
1: That sounds pretty good. So, so far,
0: so good. What's yes. the problem here? So yeah, where, where did it all go wrong, yeah. right? Well, so in 2018, a new firm was brought in by the city to really um, amp up the the replacements, right? They were gonna go in and like dig in and just get everything sorted out. Except there the company chose not to use that model anymore. So what happened was the, the group that was working with the city um, in 2017 left uh, around October and the new guys, the new company didn't come until the end of 2017, around December. So they came in, there was no overlap there wasn't any sharing and mm-hmm. the new company came in and basically said all right we just have to start at ground zero so they didn't use the model and instead um they they changed their methods right because not only did the company not not really know how to use that model or even have the database but the mayor was also facing political pressure mm-hmm. right and this is where this is where i think it gets relevant to the data science world because um people were saying I don't care what a model says. If I don't care that a model thinks my house is fine, I want you to dig it and tell me that it's fine. Yeah. Right? And so obviously the the mayor is going to face political pressure, right? She doesn't want people to you know, to not to not believe her or or to say, "Oh no, you you missed my house." Um and that was what that was happening a little bit in 2017 where people were saying, "Why are you skipping me?" Mhm. Right? And so as a result, they they just sort of ignored the model and started excavating based on what they thought made sense or sort of to appease the different parts of the city. And as a result, um, they started excavating a lot of places and just finding copper pipes. Yeah. Right. And missing the lead. So it's a, it's still quite a—I st- mean, obviously, the crisis is still ongoing because there are plenty of houses that still are suffering from the lead pipe issue. Yeah,
1: I mean, to, to me, this brings to mind another theme of this podcast, which is the importance of education for all. Mm-hmm. And as we've discussed previously, uh, not just the practitioners, but the public writ large. Mm-hmm. So about these machine learning models and more simply, I would guess, just probability and this idea that, you know, you might be safe 99% of the time. Uh, but someone says, well, I'm, I'm not comfortable maybe because I don't understand probability or maybe just because I do, and that's the way I feel, I suppose people are entitled to their feelings. Mm. But I'm not comfortable with 99% certainty. I, I want that extra 1%. Uh, and I don't envy the politicians in the world who uh, need to help fight that battle, but I think we as people in the data science space and people who in theory have some understanding of model building and probability should be doing a better job to say this is what the output means. And so maybe um, – When they say this was a feel-good story that that went poorly, um, that's maybe one way that they would say they could have done better to make it go less poorly. They could have, in addition to creating this really wonderful model, uh, that it does make a lot of sense, um, they could have said, we need to do better to ensure people that know this model won't be perfect, but for reasons X, Y, and Z, it's kind of the most sensible thing for our city to do.
0: Right. Like, okay, this is the baseline where we're starting with the model says these are the homes to dig. We're gonna do those. Once we know that we've gotten those ones out, we'll go back and check yours, even if the model says it's fine. Yep. Right. That can that can be sort of a, a compromise. But I I wonder too, given that so much of our our lives are already using machine learning models, you know, what is the I mean, it's obvious to me what the difference is here, but how do we figure out how to convince people that, well, you know, you're already trusting models to do a lot of stuff for you that you don't even realize. So now when it comes to this issue, which is very prominent and in the, in the top of your mind, what what's changed here, right? You know, um, think about like medical probability statistics, right? Sort of like, okay, we found this. We have these two uh, treatments for your, your illness. This one has a 85% chance of success. This one has a 90% chance of success. You know, people are going to say, okay, give me the 91, right? But... They're not They're not arguing, no, I don't want any treatment unless you give me 100% accuracy on this or 100% chance of success.
1: Yeah, but I think it's more – to my mind, it's more the lack of knowing. So to explain what I mean by that, uh, we don't yet have these driverless cars where there's a 99.99% chance it's going to be fine. But I know if I'm driving that I'm in control and even though there's realistically a much higher chance for me to make a mistake – Uh, I just know I have the control. So this is similar to what we see, I think, in the medical world, where a lot of people choose to opt into high-cost testing, where we're pretty sure, based upon historical probabilities, that you don't have this issue. Um, But we can perform this costly test to, to with certainty, tell you whether you do or do not have this illness. Uh, And so people there, too, I think they're not comfortable living in that uncertainty, even though all signs to them Uh, sorry, even though all signs point to them being fine.
0: Mm. uh, It's a high-risk domain.
1: Yeah. And so I think in this case, it's different than our Facebook algorithms um, being optimized here. We're still not that comfortable with people trusting models and probabilities. That's my impression.
0: Well, yeah, I get that, right? I mean, sort of the machine learning world still has a ways to go to prove that, yeah, what we're telling you is going to fit the story, right? And then you know, someone can make the argument based on what we talked about earlier that, no, your model is actually terrible because you're not taking in any context. Right. You're you're using historical data. That data is all wrong, whatever. And in fact, actually, the article here discusses that uh, later on, the city found that the hydro procedure that they were using to build some of the data out was actually missing certain lead pipes. Mm. Right. And so it's never a clean, easy thing. Um, but. I hope that as we move forward, right, like politicians themselves become educated on what these these models mean and what they can and cannot do. Um, We as data scientists and people in the data world um, start providing more, you know, in English, please, down to earth explanations of what's happening so that the average person has a basic literacy or understanding of what's happening in the model, what's happening in the data science space. Um, so they can make a better judgment, right? And not not think like, well, some like magical machine thing told me this, I don't want to believe it at all. Um, versus, okay, I, I kind of understand what happened here or why they've made this decision.
1: Yeah, and also saving room, I think, for collaboration in the mm-hmm. model design process. So mm-hmm. t- to your point, if models are performing poorly, like they're not accurate um, in some sense, then that's justified and people should have the ability to, to complain accordingly, or at least to be educated and to say, hey, this model is going to be correct 70% of the time, so 30% of the time we're going to get it wrong. But I think another way in which people need to be educated and we need to collaborate, um, and both parties need to be educated in this case, is the people who are building the model, they probably have a lot to learn from the people who live in Flint and say, oh, actually, there's this thing that you computer scientists aren't aware of, but I bet this really is something that's highly correlated with lead pipes. So you should take this into account in your model, too. Um, and how often are we getting that on-the-ground information? I feel like not enough.
0: Yeah. I think one last point for me on this is that it's not also just that the model is going to be the final say, right? So the model says, okay, these 70 houses mm-hmm. have lead. These 30 we can ignore. Mm-hmm. Well, the city is going to go ahead and hit the 70 first. And then once we've gotten out the ones that the model thinks is for sure, we'll still go back and check the ones that the model said is a no, right? I don't think the idea is to use the model or use that, use that data as like the final source of truth, but rather as a, a signpost in, in the wilderness, if you will, um, to find out where to go first, definitely get some of these high-risk homes safe. And then go back and check everyone. I mean, that's if I if I were mayor, right, that's what I would do. Again, it's not an easy task um, to balance all these different political forces and people and, you know, city council and all of that. So
1: it brings us back to the uh, centaur decision making that we discussed last time. <laughs> so, again, right. for listeners, if you, if you missed episode three, go back and check out centaur decision making.
0: Great. Thanks, Will.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: OK, before we head out, banana fact of the podcast. So. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, in 2001, a bunch of bananas took the title of, quote, largest bunch of bananas, and it actually held 473 individual bananas um, and weighed 287 pounds, or 130 kg, and it was actually grown in the Canary Islands.
1: Wow, that is quite an outlier.
0: <laughs> it is Indeed.
1: That's all we've got for today in the world of Banana Data. We'll be back with another podcast in two weeks. But in the meantime, subscribe to the Banana Data newsletter to read these articles and more like them. We've got links for all the articles we discussed today in the show notes.
0: All right. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure, training. It's been a great Well, See you next time.